Hey guys, good morning. I'm really glad that you're here, here to celebrate the third week of Advent with us. I got some good news and I got some bad news for you this morning. What do you want first? You good news or bad news, people? Good news, okay. The good news is that Christmas is this week. Isn't that awesome? That's unbelievably pathetic. Uh, Christmas is this week. Come on, this is the most wonderful time of year. This is so exciting. Um, But I know why some of you aren't excited, because that's also the bad news, right? Many of you have shopping to do, but it's okay. That's what Amazon Prime was created for. So I plan to finish mine up or do it all actually this week. Um, There's something for everybody on Amazon. So this week is incredibly exciting. Christmas is this week. As I think about this time of year, this Advent season, um, I was trying to think of just everything that kind of goes along with it. And even though it is super exciting, probably one of the most exciting times of the year, uh, the truth is it's also one of the most stressful. And I was trying to think of what are all the things that make Christmas time, just really the holiday season, so stressful. And one of the things that I kind of zeroed in on is Christmas parties. Um, I had to plan one this year, and I had to attend one. Actually, I attended two. The one I planned was really fun. Um, I'll just put that out there. But the one I attended was for my wife's company, um, and that was not so fun. And many of you kind of know what I'm talking about. Like, I talked to a lot of you that went to your corporate Christmas parties, and all of you said it was pretty awkward. Like, it just wasn't that fun. It was kind of forced, right? I think that was kind of the mentality or the, the uh, overwhelming consensus. And so I was trying to think, like, what is it that makes Christmas parties so stressful, so awkward, um, just really not that much fun? And one of the things that I think makes them so awkward is introductions, um, I've told you before how I'm really bad at like small talk and just kind of like mingling. Um, and that's what you do for like three to four hours at a Christmas party, right? Like you go to one little circle and you ask the same three questions and get the same three questions asked of you. Um, and then you go do it again with another group and you kind of do that for three to four hours and it's exhausting. But here's kind of the other thing that I have going against me is one of those questions is what do you do, Right. And when you walk into a Christmas party and someone asks you what you do, and you say, I'm a pastor, that's not like a conversation starter. That's like a conversation ender, right? They're like, oh, that's interesting, or oh, that's nice. And then they kind of move on, like, nice talking to you, okay? And so uh, these awkward kind of introductions, like, I'm, one, not good at them. Two, they just, like, create a lot of anxiety and stress for me. And so all that combined makes Christmas parties just not that much fun for me. And I know that a lot of you feel that way. Some of you are raging extroverts, and so you don't have that feeling. Like, you just love all of that, all the small talk, and you're able to, like, have, you know, hours-long conversations with people like me that make me feel really awkward. But uh, that's okay. We love you anyway. Um, and I think some of the things that, like, make those so uncomfortable, like, we talked about small talk. Um, sometimes, like, forgetting people's names. Like, you're at these parties, and, like, you haven't seen any of these people since the last year, right? But they all know who you are because they work with your spouse, and so they all talk about all their spouses at work all day. Um, and then you walk into these conversations, and you're supposed to know all these details about their lives, um, much less remember their names, and that just gets awkward when they expect you to do that. And, you know, as I was thinking about our text tonight, Psalm 24, the one that we just read, um, really what this is, is it's an invitation. Um, or, sorry, it's not an invitation. It is, but it's also an introduction, um, this psalm is an introduction to who Jesus is, and David's going to tell us he's the king. He's the king of glory. And as I've thought about introductions and awkward introductions, I thought about a lot of you, because I feel like a lot of you might have had an awkward introduction to Jesus. Maybe you, you grew up in kind of a religious home. Maybe you grew up around the church. Maybe you grew up having like friends that went to church, and they weren't always like your favorite people. Like Maybe like 
the meanest people in your family are actually the most religious people. And those are like not very good representations of Jesus. That's not a very good introduction to Jesus. And so my prayer for you tonight is that you would see tonight more as a reintroduction to who Jesus is. And so there's many of you, though, that you have been introduced to Jesus. And so tonight what I want you to really zero in on is who he is and what he's done. Just remember that and worship him for that tonight. And so David is the author of this psalm. And so in this introduction to Jesus, he's going to give us some of the qualifications for why Jesus has the right to be our king, why he is this king of glory. And the first qualification that we see in this text is found in the first two verses. So look down at your Bibles. Make sure you have one in front of you because we're going to reference it tonight. First two verses, David says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. What's going on here? Basically, David's saying, Jesus is the king who created you. Therefore, he owns you. Because he created you, because he created everything, everything belongs to him. So everything from the Rocky Mountains that we all enjoy playing in and looking at and taking photos of to the chair that you're sitting in right now belongs to Jesus. And know what that includes? That includes the person sitting in those chairs. That includes you. And so, you know, this idea of the creation belonging to the creator, it's really not a foreign concept to us. Um, That's kind of where we get the idea of trademarks and copyrights, um, patents, things like that. We also, we live in one of the most artistic neighborhoods in Denver. We reference that frequently. And so a lot of you are creatives, you're designers, uh, you're builders. And so you recognize the fact really well that like when you create something, when you design something, that belongs to you. Like you created it. You get to determine where it goes, how it's used, who sees it. Um, we don't really argue with that. But where this gets a little bit tricky is when we take this and we apply it to our lives, right? Um, so when I think about kind of my home, I live in a really old home. My home is like a constant renovation project. It's been there that way since we moved in like three years ago. It's that way right now. I'm trying to finish my baby room because my baby's coming next week. Wow, I just said that out loud. Um, and so one of the things, though, I build a lot of things around my house. One of the things, though, that I've built is my kitchen table. Many of you have sat around that table uh, for Citigroup. It's pretty big. It's pretty simple, but it does the job. I used to be really proud of it, and then I saw Andrew Baker's tables, and I'm not as proud of it anymore, but it still gets the job done. And, you know, if you came to my house, you looked at my table, and you said, like, that's a nice table. I'm going to take it to the mountains. I'm going to flip it over, and I'm going to throw my friends on it. We're going to get to bogging down a hill with it. I'd say, like, that's crazy for one thing, but, like, you don't get to do that. Like, I built that table, so I get to decide how it's used, and I designed for it to be used to, like, host people and have meals at and for my family and friends to sit around, not for you and your friends to go tobogganing down a a mountain. So that's the same idea that we see here in this psalm, right? Jesus, he's the creator, so Jesus decides how we live our lives. He possesses ownership. He possesses authority over us. So if we're going to be consistent with this logic, then we would have to say that this logic doesn't just apply to the stuff that we make. This logic also applies to the stuff our Creator has made, which is each one of us and our lives. And so the reason I think, though, this is so difficult for us is because Naturally, you and I are rebels, right? Sin has made us this way. Sin has made us 
opposed to authority. Um, sin has made us prize and to run after our autonomy. But the thing is, if this logic is true, which it is, human autonomy is a myth, right? It's not real. It doesn't exist. Like, we do not rule ourselves because we were created by Jesus. I was trying to think of a few ways that I kind of buck against this in my life. I was trying to think of um, what happens when I start ruling myself and when I start living for my own kingdom instead of God's kingdom. And one of the areas where I really see this um, is like I start living my life like it's all about me. Uh, When I buck against the rule and reign of King Jesus and I try to establish my own kingdom and rule myself, I live in a way where I pursue what satisfies me, what makes me happy, what makes me feel secure. And a lot of times those aren't the same things that Jesus says will do that. Um, And for me, like, I'm just really materialistic. I love stuff. Um, I have a lot of hobbies, and I like to acquire stuff. And I'm kind of obsessive by nature, too. So when I, like, figure out something that I really want, that's, like, it consumes me. That's all I can think about. Like, I, I will read every review on Amazon. Like, 542 reviews, I will read every one of them. Then I'll try to find, like, a better deal on Craigslist to see if I can find a used one, and I'll haggle that guy down and get it for, a, like, a $100 thing for, like, $25. That makes me feel really good about myself. But the thing is, like, this never ends. It's kind of like destructive cycle. Like, once I acquire one thing, I'm on to the next. My wife hates this, right? Because once I find something that I, I want, which quickly turns into a need, it possesses me. Like, she loses me for the entirety of that week or month or however long it takes me to get what I need. And so when I start living for my kingdom, I start seeking things that make me feel satisfied. I start seeking stuff. Another area where I see this in my life is I try to control everything. I try to control people. I try to control money. I try to control my influence. I even try to control my circumstances. And the problem is once I realize that I can't really control them, I get really frustrated, and I get really angry. I get angry at people. I get angry at God. I get angry at the people I love the most, which is so ridiculous. And then when people don't do what I want them to do, I get really impatient with them. And then when my circumstances don't go the way that I want them to, I panic. Another area where I see this in my life is that I pretend that I'm self-sufficient. When I think that I'm king and things are going really well, what happens is I I live under this delusion that I have everything that I need to make myself happy within myself. So I don't need people. I definitely don't need God because I have stuff together. Things are going well. And so rather than looking at how well things are going and attributing those things to the goodness of the king, I rob him of his glory and I fabricate the lie that I've done something to earn how well things are going for me. So I don't look at my community as a gift, but more as a burden. I look at them as like people who need me, but I don't really need them. And so I could kind of take it or leave it. I, uh, I tend to coast in my prayer life and like my devotional life and just time I spend with God because I don't think I'm dependent on him. I don't think I'm dependent on anybody but me. And so I can easily go through a day without a single thought of him or who he is or what he's done for me. And that works for a while, um, but then the, wi- the wheels fall off the wagon. And you guys know this, because here's the thing. I'm not the only one who does these things. We all do this. Uh, And the reason I know this is because I sit across the table from people every week whose life looks very different than the way that they want it to look. 
And here's what it comes down to. In every case, in every situation, they are trying to be king. They're running after the things that God says are wrong. They're bucking against the things that God says are right. God says, here are the rules for who you should have sex with. Here are the rules for who you shouldn't have sex with. Here are the rules for how you should handle food. Here are the rules for how you should handle alcohol. Here are the rules for who you should date. Here are the rules for who you shouldn't date. And they run towards those things instead of away from those things. And then they wonder why their life doesn't look the way they want it to look. God says, here's the community I've given you to submit to. He says, here are the things that you should give your money to. Here are the things that you should prioritize when you make major life decisions, like where you live, like what job you'll work, who you should marry, and they blatantly disregard all of those things. Guys, here's the thing. You and me, we're self-rule junkies. We naturally seek to rule ourselves instead of be ruled. But here's the thing. We are created to love and submit to a king not be our own king. The good news, though, there's hope. I know that sounded really hopeless, but there is hope. The hope is that our king knows this about us. Our king knows us fully. And that's what we're going to look at in the next few verses here, verses 3 and 6. So let's look down at verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. So David's telling us here that the next qualification of King Jesus is that he is the king who knows us. He knows us better than your best friend. He knows you better than your spouse. He's actually the only one who knows you fully. And so what David's doing in these verses here is He's asking a question. Actually, it's a, it's a rhetorical question because the answer is pretty obvious. And so what he's asking is, who can stand in the presence of the king? Who can approach the king? Um, you know, we all know that even though we don't have kings and kingdoms here in America, we have a democracy, like we're familiar enough with the way kings and kingdoms work. Like not anybody can just approach the king. Not anybody can just walk into the palace. Like there's some requirements, there's some qualifications for the people that can stand before the king. And so what David's asking here is, who are those people? Who can approach the king? And so he kind of works through um, this list. He says, let's look down again at uh, verse four. He says, he who has clean hands, and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. So basically he's saying um, you basically have to have outward obedience. That's what clean hands means. You have to have a pure heart, so pure motivations. And then who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Basically those are just more specific for categories for you have to love God perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly. Okay, And so what David's kind of forcing us to do is look through these requirements and kind of test ourselves against them. And as I kind of thought about that idea, um, I started thinking about what it's like to look for uh, a place to live, like um, an apartment or a home. Um, I haven't had to do it recently, and I don't envy you, those of you that have had to just because of the ridiculousness of Denver real estate right now. Um, you all know that. And so a lot of you have probably been on Zillow recently, and you know how it starts. Like you put in your zip code, right? And then that zooms in on the area of Denver that you're trying to look for a house or an apartment in. And so that gives you like several hundred listings, right? Several hundred potential options. And from there, you, 
go to the filter. I don't know where it is. Maybe left or top of your screen. And you start clicking the boxes of your requirements for that house or that apartment. And so uh, maybe it needs to have two bedrooms. Um, so you check that box, and that narrows your results. That weeds out all of the listings that don't meet your requirements. Uh, maybe you check it has to have this many square feet, this many bathrooms. And slowly but surely, you start getting that, those listings down to a group of maybe 10 or so. And then you remember, oh, um, I need to have a place to park my car. And so like, you check garage or parking space, and then that brings up one. There's one option. There's one listing in all of Denver. And so you call your real estate agent because you've got to get that thing under contract ASAP because somebody else is probably already on their way, right? That's the way it works. Um, and that's what's happening here in this text. Like, we're like supposed to be filtering ourselves out uh, because it's like, even if you think that you've been perfectly obedient, who can really say they've had perfectly pure motivations, right? Even if you can say you've been obedient and had pure motivations, can you really say you've loved God perfectly? Even if you've had perfect motivations, perfect obedience, you've loved God perfectly, can you really say that you've loved your neighbor perfectly, right? Who meets this criteria? That's what David's forcing us to ask. Who can do this? And the obvious answer is nobody. Nobody can say that they've met all of these requirements. Nobody can say that they've loved God perfectly, loved their neighbor perfectly, obeyed perfectly, had perfectly pure motivations. I know I don't check out. I know you don't check out. See, the idea here is like, the idea of being fully known is kind of terrifying to us. Um, We all kind of live with a little bit of fear uh, that if we were fully known, people wouldn't accept us. We'd be rejected. If people really knew like, what we thought uh, about them or what we thought about things in general, if people really knew what we did last year or last weekend, there's no way that they would love us. There's no way that they would accept us. And that's why, if you've ever noticed, whenever there's like an email hack and then it's in the media, um, there's always a scandal that follows it, right? You never see like so-and-so's email was hacked and there's nothing really there to report. Like, for one, that doesn't really make good news. Two, it doesn't happen. Like when someone's email is hacked, the stuff that they've been hiding and suppressing comes out. And we know that about ourselves too. Like we all have skeletons in our closet. Like we all have baggage that we bring to the table. And this, this fear really drives a lot of what we do and, and what we don't do. Um, this is what keeps us from having really authentic relationships with people. We fear that if they really knew who we were, they wouldn't, we are, they wouldn't want to be our friend. Um, this is what keeps all of our relationships kind of at an arm's length, is because if people get too close, they won't love me, and they won't accept me. But you see, Jesus is different. What we see in this psalm is that he who knows us more fully than anyone ever can actually loves us more than anyone else ever could. That's why this is actually good news. That's why it's good news that Jesus actually knows us more fully than anyone else ever could. None of us can meet the requirements to approach the king. We can't even get close. We're completely and we're utterly helpless when we line ourselves up against this list of qualifications. But here's what's awesome, is our king who knows us fully who knows us better than anyone else ever will. He doesn't reject us, and he doesn't leave us outside the palace walls. He doesn't withhold his love from us. He doesn't withhold his acceptance from us. He doesn't withhold his affection from us. You know, you know what this king does? This king comes to us. He comes to us, and he rescues us. And that's what David's going to show us 
in verses 7 and 10. Let's look at verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So the final qualification that David gives us for this king is that he rescues us. David is proclaiming Jesus is the king who rescues you. So what we just saw in the previous verses is our inability to approach the king. And in these verses, we see that Jesus is the king who comes to us and does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He sees us in all of our helplessness, and he comes to us so that he might rescue us. Look at the language that David uses here. David uses the language, lift up your heads. And he repeats it in verse 9. Lift up your heads. It's almost as if David's anticipating the helplessness that we feel after reading those previous verses. He, it's almost like he anticipates how hopeless we feel after realizing like we can't approach the king. We, have, we don't really have any options. Um, and so he says, lift up your heads. That is the posture of helplessness, right? Like, if you have kids or if you work with kids, like, you know what this looks like. When a kid is scared, um, when the kid is having anxiety, if he's afraid of something, like, what do they do? They lift up their heads, they put out their arms to you, and they want you to pick them up. They want you to rescue them from the situation that they're in. That's what David's seeing here. That's the posture that we have before this king. The posture to receive help to, is to recognize how helpless we are and to lift up our heads. A few months ago, um, in October, Vanessa and I, my wife, we, uh, we took a road trip. Uh, we drove up to Yellowstone first, and we kind of made our way through Yellowstone. Uh, and then we went to the Tetons, which are incredible. Um, and then after our week, just kind of like seeing all the sights and doing some hiking up there, um, she flew out of Jackson Hole, and I was going to stay for another week and hang out with some friends. And so I had one day uh, and one night that was kind of overlap, um, or not overlap, opposite of overlap, whatever that is, where I was by myself, all right? And so she flew out of Jackson Hole. I had the next 36 hours, not 36, 24 hours or so um, to just kind of do whatever I wanted to do. And so I had this grand idea that I was going to go get lost. Um, I didn't realize how prophetic that was when I thought it. But I, uh, I just started driving. I started driving out of Jackson Hole. I took the, a ride on the first dirt, hole, dirt road that I found, kept driving. And I wanted to find a good fishing hole. I wanted to find a place where I could be by myself. I wanted to find a place where apparently I could tell a story. Um, and so I found it. And I uh, was driving along, driving further than I knew I should drive on this dirt road. And um, keep in mind, I was not in my truck. I was in our new Subaru. And so I kind of wanted to see, like, what this thing could do, right? We had just gotten it. Uh, Vanessa was really anxious about me taking this thing to Wyoming anyway, um, so I knew I had to be really, really careful, and I knew I shouldn't do this. Um, But I found this fishing hole, like, thousands of yards from the road, but I could see it, and there was a little dirt road that went down there. It was really steep, and I knew I shouldn't go down there. I knew I shouldn't go down there, and I did. Um, I went straight down there. I didn't really think much about it, actually. I thought I could get out of here. Um, And so I fished all day, and it was awesome. It was just like something out of a textbook. And night came. I set up camp down there. And I remember thinking, if it rains, I'm in big trouble. Like, I'm not getting out of here. Like, 
the way that, how steep the hill was, the way that Wyoming gets when it rains, like the, it, the mud is just like something out of this world. It's just so, you can't even walk in it. And so I knew there's no way my little Subaru was getting out of this hole. And so I, uh, I looked up at the sky to see if they could see any clouds. There was no clouds. I just saw stars. I didn't have cell service, which was kind of the point of this whole thing, was to get out of cell service range. Um, and, but I remember from the last weather report I had checked, there was no rain in the forecast. Um, so I set up camp, went to sleep. And about midnight, I woke up to raindrops on the hood of my car. And I remember panicking. <laughs> I remember thinking, I have to get out of here. So I hopped out of the car. I threw all my stuff in it. And I couldn't get more than 10 feet. And so here I am, um, way outside of Jackson, no cell service. Um, you can't see me from the road, really. And not a whole lot of options. I think that was probably one of the most helpless feelings that I had had in a long, long time. And so I remember praying, like, God, I get it. Like, please just help it stop raining sometime before the morning. Like, I really need to get out of here. Um, it rained all night long, so it only got worse. And so I remember trying to formulate my game plan. I was awake pretty much all night trying to figure out, like, what I'm going to do. Um, and so basically morning came, kind of morning. It was like 5 in the morning, and my only options that I could see uh, were to start walking, start walking back to Jackson, 25, 30 miles. Like, it's doable. I wouldn't die, right? <laughs> so I got all my warmest clothes on, like every layer that I had, every weapon I had pepper spray, gun, uh, knives, like I had everything. There's grizzlies out there. This is Wyoming, right? Not that that would do anything, but I had it all. And so I knew that in order to get help, I had to get to a place where I could be help. And where I was was not going to work. Nobody could even see me down there. I had to get up to the road. I didn't know how many people would be driving on that road. Um, I didn't know which direction they'd be going. I didn't know if anybody would be friendly enough to give me a ride, Uh, but I knew I had to do something, right? And so I had no options. I was completely helpless. I dragged myself up to the road, and I started walking towards Jackson. And I walked, and I walked, and I walked. And finally, I heard the sound of tires on gravel, and then I saw headlights. And like that feeling of relief was like nothing I've ever experienced. Like I knew in that moment, I didn't know who it was. It could have been a serial killer, and I would have been like, it's okay. Like, Could I have a ride? Um, it was a nice wrangler who was taking her cat to the vet, so it was safe. I was probably more of a threat. Um, she was like, no, this actually happens more than you would think. I was like, oh, I'm a statistic, okay. So she gave me a ride in town, all was well. And so the point of that story is that same feeling of relief that I felt after a night spent out in Wyoming, in grizzly country, not knowing how I was going to get back to civilization The relief that came when that wrangler picked me up is the relief that we should feel when we read through this psalm. This is the relief that we celebrate at Christmas. Because more than family, more than friends, more than good wishes, and more than good cheer, we celebrate the fact that the king has come to us and done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He saw us in our helpless condition, and he came so that we might be rescued. One commentator that I read put it this way. He said, This king, who from eternity had the power, authority, even sovereignty, gave it up. Rather than kill, he chose to be killed. Who is this king of glory? Jesus Christ, who did not count sovereignty or equality with God a thing to be exploited, but emptied himself into a manger, being born in human likeness, in human form. Here's where I find such hope in this. These last few months have been some of the most stressful that I can remember in a long time. 
Um, I've been trying to finish my last semester of grad school, which is stressful enough as it is. Um, I've been trying to get ready for year-end stuff at work and preparing for a, a new year, um, which is also stressful. I've been trying to prepare for a child and finish this room that doesn't seem to ever want to get finished. Um, and on top of that, I've been trying to write this sermon. Um, and what I've realized, I guess what I've been reminded of these past few months, is I've been reminded of my limitations. See, I've done the best that I could in all of these areas. I've done what I could at work. I've done what I could for school. I've done what I could for this baby room. I've done what I could for this sermon. And at the end of the day, like, there's still people whose expectations I didn't meet. There's still people who are disappointed with me. There's still projects at work that I didn't get to complete. And there's still baby room that isn't finished. And to be honest, this sermon probably isn't as good as it could have been. But you know what? It's okay. And for like a type A perfectionist, for me to say that, like that's a big deal. I'm not the king, and that is so liberating. When I accept my limitations and I realize that I'm not the king, but there is a king who I work hard and I labor for, but at the end of the day, he's the one in charge, like that is such a freeing realization. When I fall short and when I drop the ball and when I fail myself and other people, this king does for me what I can't do for myself. He does this in the largest area by accomplishing my salvation, but he also does this in the little areas by giving me grace and provision to serve him well on a daily basis. You and I were never meant to bear the burden of kingship. We were kingdom-oriented because we were made to serve a king, not be a king. I'm really glad it's that way. And you know, when I look around this room I see so many of you who can totally relate to that anxiety and just that just beat downness of trying to be king. Like your life right now is just not what you pictured. You feel out of control. Your expectations haven't been met. You're walking through a season of tremendous loss and sadness during a season that's supposed to be particularly joyful. And you know what? It's okay to feel that. Like it really is. Like you need to feel that. You need to feel permission to feel that. Because, because the truth is, the king can't help you until you recognize your helplessness and lift up your head to him. But I want to remind you of what makes this time of year so special. See, even if none of your expectations for this Christmas season have been met, even if the happiest time of year is for you one of the saddest, you can find tremendous hope and healing in the beautiful truth that we find here in Psalm 24, that your king has come to you. He's come to rescue you. He came once to rescue you from the sin that held you hostage, and he's coming again to rescue you from the brokenness and the suffering that you're experiencing right now. Guys, when we read Psalm 24, particularly in a season like Advent, our reminder here is that Jesus is the king who created you. He's the king who knows you. He's the king who rescues you and continues to rescue you. That's the hope in Christmas. That's what we're celebrating this morning. We're celebrating the truth that we don't have to work to be king because we've been gifted with a king. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of this king. Thank you for King Jesus, who we celebrate and proclaim today. And we will all this week as we have this whole season. 
thank you that not only did he create us, but he has authority and ownership over us and is working for our good, has our best in mind. Thank you that he knows us more fully than we could ever know ourselves or anyone else could ever know us. And in spite of that, he loves us. He accepts us so much so that he came for us or to rescue us from our sin, to rescue us from ourselves. And thank you that he's coming again to rescue us from the brokenness and suffering that Lord, we experience in our lives here. And so I pray that this season would be particularly joyful as we reflect on a king who doesn't stand off and require us to approach him, require us to meet his standard of perfection, but a king who sees our helplessness, a king who recognizes our inability to get to him, a king that comes to us. And so I pray that we would lift up our heads this morning and we would receive the gift of this king. And pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.